This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Good morning. Welcome to New Life. My name's Kevin, and I am whoever you want me to be. But for the most part, I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I, uh, I got the nod to come to the big show today to preach to you fine people. So uh, I'm enjoying every moment of it, and I hope that God will speak to you. Uh, you know, one of the, one of the truths uh, about God is that God doesn't sleep, that God is preparing and working even as we are resting. So I believe that even last night as you were sleeping, uh, and those of you who just had a baby in the last week maybe weren't sleeping, uh, know that God was up with you. For the rest of us who were sleeping, uh, God was preparing today for us, that we would meet him, that we would experience him, and in him we would experience transformation, that we would experience a fullness of life like nothing else that we could ever experience. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that we know, and that's the God that many of us have come to fall in love with. And so if you're here today and you've never experienced that God, I invite you, open yourself up to a God who is working even when you're sleeping, who wants to prepare uh, a day for you, a day of purpose, a day of passion, a day where he is moving powerfully and working in your life. We're in a series right now called Rhythms of Life. And we're looking at, at practices that Christians have done, that followers of Jesus have done throughout the centuries to help them connect with God to help them really engage with the life that God would call them to, the life that God wants them to lead, a fullness of passion, of, of mission, of purpose. We started with connection, the reality that we connect with God, that the Bible says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Think about that for a minute. The God of the universe, the creator of all things says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. We don't have to wonder if God is near. God is near. It's his promise. You can take it to the bank. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And we talked about how to relate not only to God, but to people and to the world, our place of connection. Then we talked about virtue, uh, the reality that we can uh, experience fullness in life when we think and when we act in the ways that God has called us to think and act. People who uh, act with, with virtue, do what, what is right, what is true, what leads to fullness of life. And then last week we talked about strength, the reality that there is pain in the world, that things get hard from time to time, and that God actually gives his very self in the form of his spirit to guide and to lead us and to empower us. When we come to a fork in the road and we have to choose, will I go on a path of destruction, of death, which the Bible calls sin, or will I choose God, will I choose life? When we come to that point, God gives us his very self so that we might choose life, that we might choose him, that we might choose the right way. Uh, Ron shared with us the reality that sin gives us power in the moment, but ultimately it's fleeting. But God gives us power that's lasting. God gives us strength to make it through not just today, but this week, this month, this year, our lifetime. And so these last rhythms have been about getting our lives um, beating internally with God. Getting us connected with God, getting us um, acting right in relation to God, uh, and then God giving us strength to make it through the day. And we need to start there, because if we're not connected to God on the inside, if we aren't right with God, if the drum of our life isn't beating regularly, connecting with God, living lives of virtue, and and experience the strength that comes only from God, then we can't do the things we're going to be talking about next. The next two rhythms are rhythms that focus outward— Uh, They're the rhythms of compassion 
and the rhythm of mission, but really they're just the rhythms of love. They're the rhythms uh, of a God who loves people so much that he came and he gave his very self, his very son, to live a life and, and die and be raised from the dead that we might have a connection to God. And, and there are rhythms of us walking with God and loving other people the way that God loves them. I was uh, feeding our little baby, Maddie, last night, and then there was a moment where I looked in her eyes, and her little green eyes were looking back at me, and I just felt that overwhelming sense of love that a parent feels for a child. And in that moment, my mind went to the love of God. That God loves uh, immeasurably more, infinitely more than I could ever love my daughter. God loves my daughter. God loves me. God loves you. God loves everyone in this room, and God loves the people of Petaluma, Rohnert Park, Santa Rosa, Nevada, and the world. Infinitely more than we can love, God loves. The Bible says that God actually is love. So the rhythms of compassion that I'm going to talk about this week and the rhythm of mission that I'll be talking about next week are really rhythms of loving people, of joining with God. And they're good for us because we experience God more fully in them. And they're good for others because people need to experience the love that only God can offer. Three years ago, I spent eight weeks uh, living and serving in Oakland, in the inner city. Uh, and it was my wife and I and a few uh, friends. And we had just bought a little chihuahua named Chloe. And she was about four pounds at that point. And so we asked the director, can we bring Chloe with us on this trip to the inner city for eight weeks? And they said, sure. And, and so you would see me if you were in the city. You'd see me walking with a little four-pound chihuahua at night, giving her her little walk. And people would just yell comments at me, like, a man that big shouldn't have a dog that small. Or, my cat could eat your dog. You know, um, <laughs> Because the reality is the people that lived in Oakland, they had uh, Doberman Pinchers and Rottweilers, and they had big dogs. They were guard dogs, and I had Chloe. And so we'd start talking, and, and I'd come up, and I'd say, hey, I'm the new kid on the block, and this is Chloe. She's my guard dog. She's got the right stuff. And, uh, and before you knew it, we were just in this good dialogue, this good uh, conversation. Chloe was my outreach puppy in Oakland. And during the days, we would work uh, with kids in the community. We'd do a, a program, a summer program. Uh, and there was one little kid named Xavier there who, uh, I mean, he, he, he stole my heart because he was probably one of the harder kids in the group. And I like that. I resonated with that. Uh, he, would, um, he would look at you and he'd kind of look right through you. He was probably eight or nine years old, but he talked and acted like he was 18, 19, 20. Uh, and he would get in fights a lot. And so when he'd get in a fight, he'd have to leave the program for the day. That was just the rules. No fighting in the program. And since I was one of the older people there, I was the one who had to, to escort him out from time to time. And so one day he got in a fight, and I, I got down on his level, and we started talking. I said, you know what? You can't stay today. And he was angry. So he starts cussing at me a little bit. And I said, I know. You're mad. I understand. But you got to go. So I open the fence, and he walks out, and he crosses the street. And I turn around to walk away, and all of a sudden I hear crash. And I turn around, and he's throwing rocks the size of my fist. He's chucking them over the over the fence at me from across the street, and he's getting close. I mean, he's going to hit me, and I'm getting nervous. And so I say, hey, knock it off. You can't, you can't do that. And he threw his hands up, you know, big eight-year-old, you know, real tough guy in Oakland. And, uh, and so I went to open the gate to talk to him, and he ran away. And then I shut the gate and started walking in again with the rocks. And this went on all afternoon. I mean, for like two hours. Just, he'd run away. I didn't want to chase him because you don't want to be a 23-year-old guy chasing a little kid in, in Oakland. Um... <laughs> Or anywhere, really. I mean, that's just not the way we want to we go. Uh, so I wouldn't chase him, but then he'd come back and throw rocks. And by the end of the day, I was annoyed, to say the least. We're in church, so we'll just leave it there. I was annoyed. 
And so I went to the director of our program, and I was venting about this kid, just how much trouble he was causing, how we got to kick him out of the project, this, that, and the other. He said, do you know his story? I said, no, I, I don't know his, his story. He said, well, um, his dad's not in the picture, never has been. Uh, he's born to a drug-addicted mother who still uses regularly, and she's, uh, she's a prostitute. She sells herself on the street. Uh, he never sees her. She, he's on his own pretty much every day from the time he gets up till the time he goes to bed at eight or nine years old. In that moment, my anger melted. And I began to ask the big questions. Why is there so much pain in the world, right? Why do things like that happen? Why should a little boy have to go through that? And if you're like me, whether you, uh, you have a relationship with God, you know God or not, isn't there something in you that, that resonates with that? Man, that breaks our hearts. When we find out things like there are more people being sold into the sex slave trafficking business today than there were in the entire North American slave trade. When we find out that people are dying by the tens of thousands every day from hunger, lack of water, preventable diseases, doesn't your heart just break? And so we begin to ask questions, God, why? Why is there so much pain in the world? And we begin to ask, why do our hearts break when we hear about these types of things? In order to answer those questions, we need to start from the beginning of God's story in Genesis, and then we need to move to the end of God's story in Revelation, and then we're going to end with uh, the story that you just saw in the skit, to try to answer the big questions in life. Why? Why is there so much pain? And what, is, what does God have to say about it? And then as followers of God, what's our role in that? But before we get into that, let me pray for us and prepare us for uh, what God wants to say to us. Lord, we are here and we acknowledge that you have something to show us, to teach us, uh, to tell us, uh, and to encourage us in. God, we trust that you are the God of love and of compassion, uh, and we want to follow you in that. So would you open our ears up to hear the things that you have for us to hear? Would you open our, our eyes, the eyes of our heart, to see the things that you want us to see, that we could be the people that you're inviting us to be? Amen. So Genesis starts out by God creating in chapter 1 the heavens and the earth, and he speaks everything in the earth into being. And then the Bible says that God created man and woman in his image, and that's a big one. We've got to remember that you were made in the image of God. God created you in his own image. The creator of the universe made you in his image. And then God placed this man and this woman in a garden, and he told them to, to oversee everything that was going on in the garden. He gave them a passion he gave them a purpose. He gave them a mission to make sure things were running well in this garden. And he said, love each other well. Care for each other. Uh, the Bible says that the man and the woman were, were completely themselves. It uses the image of nakedness. They were naked and had no shame. They were completely themselves and completely comfortable with who God had made them to be because they knew who they were in God. The Bible says that God actually was with the people. He walked with them. He talked with them. They could reach out and touch the very hand of God. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 are a picture of heaven, of heaven and earth colliding. There's no sickness, there's no death, there's no disease, there's no pain. There is simply life, life to the fullest, life with an intimate connection with God, intimate connection with people. There's no crying, there's no hunger, there's no homelessness, there's no poverty, uh, there's no uh, babies dying, there's no prostitution but Genesis 3 changes that story. Uh, the man and the woman think they can do life on their own, apart from God. And so they try. They take some choices that would turn them away from the life that God has for them into their own devices. And the minute they do that, the Bible says that everything is broken. Everything is destroyed. The world goes to hell. 
for lack of a better term. The people hide from God. They hide from each other. They realize who they are, and they're ashamed of themselves. So when God comes to be with them, they're hiding from God. And God has to kick them out of the garden because God in his perfection cannot be with people who are choosing away from him. And so we have death enter into the picture, and sickness enter into the picture, and murder enters. I mean, these next couple chapters of Genesis are, are a pretty intense story. If you're, a, if you're an action-adventure, a, a drama kind of person, read the beginning of Genesis. It will blow you away. And the rest of the Bible talks about God trying to bring things back to the way they were in the garden, trying to restore relationships with people, trying to um, trying to come into a, a healthy understanding of who people are in their relationship to God. Uh, my wife likes to skip around in books. I don't. It drives me crazy to read the end of a book before I read the beginning, although I make exceptions with the Bible because it's long. Um, <laughs> but if you like to skip to the end of the book, I'm going to ruin the end for you. Revelation 21 talks about how things are going to end. If we start in the garden, Revelation 21 tells us that we end in a city. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was the city where God's presence was. So instead of being in a garden, now there's this holy city, and it's coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God and he will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And the person seated on the throne, that's Jesus, said, I am making everything new. Revelation 21 tells us how the story ends. You see, the Bible is not necessarily linear. The Bible comes full circle. We start in this garden, this picture of heaven where people are with God. They can touch God. They can talk to God. They can know God. There's no, more, there's no crying or pain, and it ends in this city where God's wiping the tears from their eyes. There's no more mourning, no more death. The story comes all the way back around, which brings us to today. You see, we live in between the garden and the city in between the way that God originally intended for things to be and the way that God is ultimately going to take things in the end. And that's a tough place to be, but that answers the question, why is there pain in the world? Well, there's pain in the world because we're not at the ultimate end yet. God has not made all things new. God has not brought heaven and earth back together. Why is there so much poverty? Why is there so much brokenness? Why are there inner city slums? Why is there child prostitution? Why? Because we are not where God wants us to be yet. And Jesus lived right in the middle of this tension in between the city and the garden. Mark chapter 1 verse 15 says, The kingdom of God has come near or is coming near to you. When Jesus lived, when he died, and when God raised him from the dead, he did an amazing work in restoring our relationship with God. He brought us back to God in a way that we hadn't had since we were in the garden. He restored the relationships that people had with their creator. But Jesus also lived in a world that had sickness, that had death, that had people on the margins of society who didn't have a voice. And Jesus regularly had the rhythm of compassion in his ministry. He regularly fed the hungry, healed the sick, spoke for the people who didn't have anyone talking for them because he had his eye on eternity He knew where God was taking the world, and he wanted to be part of it. Friends, 
if we're trying to be like Jesus, if that's our goal in life, then we need to be about the things that Jesus is about. Caring for the hurting, caring for the people who are broken, um, bringing an end to the things that are not right, not the way God wants them to be. And that's where the rhythm of compassion comes into our lives. You see, this rhythm isn't just for the world. Some would say that we just do good for the sake of doing good. No, that's not it. We do good for the sake of following after God because we know where God's taking us. He's told us the end of the story. We wouldn't want to walk in a world of brokenness and then one day just get to heaven and say, wow, this is what it was supposed to be like. I totally missed it when I was here on earth. No, God's inviting us to bring an end to the brokenness now. We watched a skit a little while ago, and I'm going to spend the rest of our morning talking about that skit. It comes from Luke chapter 10. Uh, And in this story, uh, Jesus tells, it's a story of compassion. It's a story of courage. Uh, It's a story uh, of um, strength. And uh, according to Jesus, it's a story of what it looks like to follow after him. It starts out like this in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. And teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this was actually a pretty regular question. If you saw someone teaching, you would go to them and and you would say to them, what are you all about? Who are you? What do you say about God? And so this religious expert or this uh, expert in the law stands up and he says, Jesus, what are you all about? Before I'm going to follow you, I need to know who you are and what you say. So he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law? And Jesus replied, how do you read it? The man answered, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But the man wanted to justify himself, so he asked, well, who is my neighbor? Uh, It's interesting. Uh, The guy, he answers the question right. The, The greatest law in the Old Testament, the Bible, arguably was love the Lord your God with everything that you are with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, with a passion that just burns inside of you? Are we loving God with a passion that burns? Because that's what God invites us into, a passionate, deep, loving relationship. And then from that deep, passionate, loving relationship with God, love your neighbor. That was a pretty normal answer. And so the the expert in the law is feeling a little dumb. And so he tried to justify himself. And he asked, who is my neighbor? And that's really the question when it comes to compassion, isn't it? Who is my neighbor? Who, who do I have to love? Who can I leave out? I mean, who, who is this neighbor? Jesus, define it for me. I don't like big, ambiguous things. Can you just define it? Is it just my family? Are, are they my neighbors? Is it the person that lives next door? Who is my neighbor? You see, in the Jewish world, that question was the question that everybody was asking. Who do I have to love and who do I have to hate? Who's in and who's out? See, if you were in, there was a huge sense of community. If you were in, people were expected to do anything for you. Anything. If you need a place to stay, you come and you stay with them. If you're hungry, they give you food. If you need money, they give you money. Uh, If you need someone to trade with at work, they would give you someone to trade with. If you were in, you were in all the way. But the question was, how did they define who's in? Well, some Jews defined it as immediate family. Sons, daughters, husbands, wives. Or it could be defined as extended family. It could be defined geographically, the village or the region that you live in. Maybe that's your neighbor. It could even be defined as a nationality. The Jewish people were sometimes defined as a big family, as a neighborhood. You are my neighbors. 
And so the question, who's my neighbor, is all about who do I have to love? Who do I have to show compassion for? And who can I leave out? Do we ever fall into that trap? Who do I have to love? I know I have to love my kids. I know I have to love my spouse, my parents. Do I have to love my kids' friends? Do I have to love all of my kids' friends? Do I have to love my daughter's boyfriends? I mean, who do I have to love, right? These are, these are very big questions for us. Um, is it okay if I just love the people in my life group? That seems manageable. That's maybe 5, 10, 15 people. Or do I have to love everybody in the church? Uh, who do I have to love? Our church is getting kind of big. That's a lot of people. Um, do I have to love all of Petaluma? Then we're talking a lot of people. Who do I have to love? Jesus. Uh, I know some of you who are, who are new freshmen are saying, man, I love all my roommates. Man, I just love them. I don't know what you're talking about, Kevin. Talk to me in a couple months. Uh, we'll see if you still love all your roommates. Uh, I've got some stories for you on uh, restoring relationships. If you come to me in a few months, I need some new sermon material, so make sure you talk to me. Um, so who do I have to love, and who can I get away without loving? And Jesus responds with a story. Jesus replied, A man's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers, and they stripped him of his clothes, and they beat him, and they went away. Now, interestingly, uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho was, down, was downhill. It was lower elevation. So he's going literally down, and there were a lot of robbers on the road. So it was known that people would get robbed as they were heading down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And, and oftentimes people would only have one set of clothes, so clothes were a, a valuable commodity. So they stripped him naked, and they beat him, and they went away, and they left him half dead. And a priest happened to be going down the same road, and he saw the man, and he passed by on the other side. So too, in in the same way, a Levite, uh, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Uh, Another trip down to Oakland, I was visiting some friends. Uh, We got hanging out and talking, and I was there till about 2 a.m. And I got in my car to drive home, and I got completely lost in downtown Oakland, which is never fun to get lost, especially when you're by yourself in a place that you don't know. Uh, and so I'm driving, and, and I pull through kind of into a cross section to look to see what the street sign is, and there are cars racing down. So I throw my car in reverse, and I slam it backwards, and bam, I smack into another car. And two big guys get out of this car. I mean, big. I mean, they must have been 12 feet tall if they were an inch. And these were huge men. And so I get out, in the most submission, submissive posture I can, hands down, you know, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to, like my little dog when she's in trouble, I, please, don't, you know, don't hurt me. What, what's going to happen here? These guys are coming. I don't know what they're going to do. It's late. And these guys get out of the car. They're like, oh, there's no damage. It looks fine. Everything looks great. No big deal. We don't need to call insurance. You're fine. Okay, fantastic. I said, hey, well, I've got you here. How do I get back to the 580? Because I'm totally lost. And they got me back to the 580. Uh, so I, I was uh, lucky in that moment. I met some nice gentlemen who really helped me out and cared for me. But I can imagine this guy. He's walking on the road by himself, and he sees some guys coming at him. And he's thinking, is this it? Am I going to get jumped? Am I going to get beaten up? Am I going to get robbed? And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. And they leave him half dead and naked on the side of the road. And, and a priest walks by. And and a Levite, and a Levite was just someone from a certain tribe in the Jewish community, so another Jewish man. They both walk by 
uh, and you think they're going to help him. Jesus is talking to a Jewish group, and you think, okay, the priest or the Levite, they'll help this guy. They'll show compassion towards him. But priests believed that if they touched a dead body, they would be unclean, and they couldn't perform their priestly duties. Some priests went so far as to believe that if their shadow just fell on a dead person, they'd be unclean and couldn't perform their duties. And so the priest and the Levite walk all the way to the other side of the road, and they walk by. Sometimes being compassionate people means that we're going to have to get dirty. Uh, Sometimes it's physically dirty. Sometimes it's emotionally dirty. Sometimes it's just getting tied in with people. But being compassionate people means that sometimes we're going to have to get dirty. It's unavoidable. It's necessary. Uh, I have a twin brother who lives in Southern California. When he was in college, he was going to church one night and went out to In-N-Out with some friends. And as he's having his double-double, he, uh, delicious, I know, uh, he sees a guy sitting by himself named Ronnie. And Ronnie's in his 40s or 50s, uh, but he's got the mental capacity of a young child. Uh, He's out from his group home, and he's having dinner by himself. So my brother gets up, and he goes over, and he sits down with Ronnie, and he has dinner with Ron. Uh, And they hang out, and they talk, and he kind of ditches his friends. And then he drives Ronnie back to uh, the group home that he lived in, and he invited Ronnie to church with him the next week. Uh, And uh, you got to know about Ronnie. Ronnie, uh, he, he... smelled. I mean, he had hygiene issues. He smelled of B.O. and didn't brush his teeth. And he smelled of smoke, cigarette smoke, and sweat. And, um, but Todd loved Ronnie. They would go to church together, and a few times I would go down and visit, and I'd go to church with Todd and Ronnie. And Ronnie couldn't, uh, he couldn't read the words on the screen for the worship song, so he would just say Jesus when he felt like it was the right time, which is a good idea if you don't know the words to a worship song in church. Just say Jesus. <laughs> People think, look how holy they are. They just, they just shout Jesus over and over again. So he, he'd just say, Jesus, Jesus, whenever he thought people were going to say it. Uh, and I got to tell you, that was one of the best worship times I ever had, was sitting there with Ronnie as he just said, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Uh, being a person of compassion isn't just good for the people that we help. It's good for our souls as well. Uh, and Ron, uh, our pastor uh, down in the church in Southern California, he was engaging, he was fun, he was exciting, but it was a night service, and Ronnie would get tired sometimes. And so he would fall asleep. And then he'd start to snore. Um, So Todd would gently nudge Ronnie in the shoulder, and Ronnie would say in a loud voice, I'm awake, I'm awake. Praise the Lord, I'm awake. At which point, I think a lot of people would shy away, and that's when Todd put his arm around Ron and sat up high and loved him. And sooner rather than later, people in our church began to love Ron. They began to care for Ron. So in a church of 5,000 people, Ron became somewhat of a celebrity. And then a ministry uh, was, was getting started to bring folks who, who lived in this group home, maybe bring them over to church so they could engage with God. I mean, stuff started to happen, but it means getting dirty sometimes. It means, uh, whether that's the way people view you or view me, whether it's physically getting dirty, uh, that's what compassion's all about. That's the rhythm of compassion. Compassion uh, also means uh, that sometimes uh, we're going to have to take risks, even when it's dangerous. The priest and the Levite don't know if the robbers are gone. Uh, they could be there. They could get jumped. It doesn't say that they're walking in a whole big group. They, they could get beat up too. They could get robbed. Um, maybe they were nervous uh, that, that that might happen. Maybe they just had to get to Jericho. Maybe they had stuff to do. But being uh, a compassionate person means taking risks even when it's inconvenient. There's a guy uh, that sits on the corner on my way home from work. He's got a couple dogs with him. He's got a sign that says homeless, you know, needs some food or some shelter, just some help. 
Um, and I see him probably once a week. And I haven't stopped yet to talk to him. Um, maybe I'm nervous that I, I don't know him. It could be dangerous. It, it could be. Um, more likely than not, it's just that I am in a hurry and I want to get home, if I'm completely honest with you. My daughter goes to bed about 5.45 and I don't get home till about 5.30, so I enjoy that 15 minutes with her. Um, the hard part of it is I know where to get this guy help. I know the organizations that can help him. I just haven't taken the time because it's inconvenient for me. But being a person of compassion means uh, that I need to stop. I need to talk, even when it's inconvenient. So feel free to ask me about that in the next couple of weeks. Maybe not everybody, but a few of you. Uh, because God's been showing me, I, I got to stop. I got to stop. We need to allow ourselves to be inconvenienced if we're going to live lives of compassion. Uh, Luke ten thirty three goes on to say, A Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And we have to understand, Samaritans and Jews were not friends. They did not like each other. The Jews believed the Samaritans were lower than them, were less than them. And so when this Jewish community that's hearing this story, when they hear that a Samaritan comes and takes pity on a Jew, they'd be outraged. What are you talking about? There's no way a Samaritan would have pity on a Jew. We have pity on them. Uh, There's no way he would stop to help us. We hate each other. We don't like each other. We don't get along. Whole roads were built to get people around Samaria so that they wouldn't have to go through the land of the Samaritans. But in this story, a Samaritan stops. Verse 34, he went to him and he bandaged his wounds. He poured oil and wine on him, and that was a a normal thing that they would do to, uh, to bring healing or to heal someone. Then he put the man on his own donkey, which means he had to get off his donkey to put somebody else back on. Sometimes we have to get off our high donkey to be compassionate. Um, (laughs) And he took him to an inn, and he took care of him. Verse 35, the next day he took out two silver coins, which would have been about the price uh, uh, of two days' wage, about what you can make in two days. Uh, And he, he told the innkeeper to look after him. He said, I will return, and I'll reimburse you of any extra expense that he has. Verse 36, Which of these men do you think acted as a neighbor to his fellow man who had fallen into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, and I love this, he said, the one who had mercy on him. I don't think he could even say the Samaritan because it just, it couldn't cross his lips. A Samaritan, it's just, it's not good. The one who had mercy on him is the neighbor. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. One of the things I love about this Samaritan is he doesn't pass judgment on the guy on the side of the road. He just sees him lying there, and he helps him. He could have said something like, well, he shouldn't have been walking alone. We know that people on the road can get robbed if they're alone. Maybe he shouldn't have been doing that. He probably made bad choices in his life that got him to that point. It's his own fault for being there. If I help him, he's just going to do it again. Why would I do that? But the Samaritan lets God be the judge, because God knows the inner part of who we are. He simply sees someone in need and helps him. I know for myself, and maybe for us, uh, although I don't want to speak for you, but for myself, sometimes it's easier to look at people who are hurting and make excuses for why I shouldn't help them, why they don't deserve it, why they don't need it. But you know what? It's all about grace. Compassion comes from being a person of grace. Of course they don't deserve it. No one deserves it. We experience God who loves us and we don't deserve it, and so we pour that out to other people who might not deserve it. I think sometimes we spend more time worrying about why someone shouldn't get help than actually helping them. And don't get me wrong, it's good to be wise. 
We've got to be discerning. Don't jump in, especially if you're a, a single female, if you're by yourself, don't jump into a situation that could be dangerous for you. That's not what we're saying. Discern, pray, figure out what God wants to do, but then jump in with your whole heart. Let's not err on the side of focusing all our attention on why people don't need our help or shouldn't need our help. Let's focus our attention on being people of compassion. Jesus ends with the two questions that he began with. Who is the neighbor in the story? And the simple answer is the neighbor is the person who acts with compassion towards someone in need. And that's a lot bigger than maybe we want to admit. We can't define the neighbor as the person next door or our immediate family. The neighbor is the person who acts with compassion. So who do I need to love? Well, to be honest, I need to love anybody. I need to love people who are hurting, who are broken. Why? Because God loves intimately and infinitely more than I could ever love. And God is forming in us a heart of love for people. Remember I said this week and next week, our two topics, compassion and mission, are really about love, about God forming in us a heart that loves people the way that God loves people, that sees people the way that God sees people. So who do we need to love? Anybody that needs it. And let's be honest, friends, everybody needs a little love in their lives. Uh, I'm meeting with a group that works in Petaluma, and they work specifically with the poor, uh, helping them find immediate shelter, helping them uh, get food, helping them um, to have job skill training and, and help issues to get out of debt. And I'm going to unveil towards the new year some great ways that we can get involved in acting compassionately on a regular basis. It's going to be easy. I mean, just easy stuff we could do. Uh, but why wait until the new year to start being people of compassion or to grow in our compassion? Because I know that each of us are people of compassion because God is growing that in us. But why wait to grow? Why not look around today, this week, this month, and say, who is hurting? Who needs to experience the love of God today? Who can I act with compassion towards? As we do that, I trust that God will be forming in us a greater heart for the world, forming in us a greater understanding of who he is. Remember, these things are not just for other people. These rhythms in our lives are for us as well. As we act compassionately towards others, God is forming in us a greater understanding of his heart for us and for the world. But if you're here this morning uh, and you're hearing about all this, but you've never experienced the God of compassion, uh, you're putting the cart before the horse. We need to know the God who loves intimately. We need to know the God who loves with an infinite amount of love before we can do the things that God calls us to do. So if you're here today, if God's stirring something in you, I want you to know that there is a God that loves you more than you could ever imagine. If you don't hear anything else today, there is a God that loves you right where you're sitting, more than you can comprehend. It will blow your mind if you try to think about how much God loves you. And he's inviting you. Come back into that intimate relationship that the people had in the garden in Genesis chapter 1. Come back into a relationship where you can know and be known by your creator. He's calling you today. So I'm going to pray and I'm going to give you some space to do some business with God in that. I'm going to give a time where you can just repeat after me and and pray and invite God to come into your life so you can experience fullness with him. I'm also going to pray for strength and for courage and for um, the rhythm of connection with God as we walk out as people of compassion. So would you join me as we pray? Lord, As we look at you, we see your heart for the world. And Lord, we confess that you love people way more than we ever could. Uh, You love us more than we can imagine, more than we even love ourselves. 
You love our friends. You love our family. You love the people in this community. You love people around the world more than we could ever understand or imagine. So Lord, would you give us your heart of love for people? Would you be transferring that to us as we know you, as we walk with you? Would you show us more what it means to be uh, in love with people the way that you are in love with them? And Lord, in that, would you be helping us to be people who act compassionately? Who don't just think compassionately or feel compassionately, but act compassionately. Would you give us tangible ways to do that, even today, even this week? And as we continue to pray, if you're here and you've never come into that intimate, that deep relationship with God, I invite you, now is the time to do it. So I'm going to pray. And if God's stirring something in you, that you would say, I want to have a relationship with the God that loves me more than I could ever imagine. You can just repeat this prayer uh, with me in your, in your heart, in your head, silently. You can say something like, Lord, uh, I want to be in a relationship with you. I'm so excited that you have opened the door for me to come, for me to know you and to be known by you. God, I accept the invitation of your love for me. Today, I I invite you to lead me and to guide me from this point on every day of my life. Amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.